0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Last Sunday, we launched a three-week study on the subject matter of eternal rewards. And we could subtitle that study, why what we choose to do now matters forever. You know, we saw for a believer in Christ Jesus, for a follower of Jesus, that when we trust in Jesus' work on the cross, on our behalf, we receive forgiveness. We receive salvation from sin and judgment and death. When we trust in Him, our eternal destiny is guaranteed. But, our spiritual success as a disciple is not. And we have to make choices every day whether we will obey or stray. We have to make choices every day whether we will seek first the kingdom of God. We make choices regularly whether we're going to invest in eternal treasure or not. We... Make choices regularly whether we will grow spiritually, whether we will serve Jesus and others. Now, as we said, we began this last week, and it's important to understand that each message in this series builds on the previous one. So if you did not hear last week's message, I would encourage you to go online and listen to it or or watch it at YouTube. You can do that. But for those of us who maybe weren't here, I want to just give a very short summary to what we covered last time we said that the subject matter of eternal rewards is often a forgotten truth. It's often a neglected truth. It is often an unexplored truth. And we emphasize that good works, good deeds, have no part in our salvation, earning our salvation at all. But once we trust in Christ as our rescuer, our eternal destiny is determined. And at that point, Good works do become part of the life that we are called to live. So then we also surveyed the the reward motif that we see all the way through the New Testament. And after you look at all those verses, you have to conclude, you know, what we need to do as a follower of Jesus choose wisely. And then we ended our time really with a glimpse at two key passages about the future evaluation that is ahead for us. We had Romans 14.10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat, the Bema of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat, the Bema of Christ. That's where we left off last time. And today what I want to do is to zoom in on this concept of the Bema. And so our plan for today really involves three things. We're going to look at A little more deeply at the subjects of the Bema. We're going to secondly look at the nature of the Bema. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the when of the Bema. So the first thing we're going to do is look at the subjects of the Bema. Now remember, these letters were written to followers of Jesus. They were written to believers. They were written to people just like you and just like me And when we look at the passages we see it very clearly stated it says for we will what does it say all stand before the bema Romans 14:10 2 Corinthians 5:10 for we must all appear before the bema Romans 14:12 each one of us will give an account of himself to God And we've seen some other passages that emphasize this. Revelation 2.23, I am he who searches the minds and hearts, this is Jesus speaking, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. And then Revelation 22.12, I am coming quickly, he says, and my reward is with me to render to every person according to what he has done. And then you can also see this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It tells us that each will receive his own reward. And later on in, the, in chapter 3 verse 13, it's talking about a test of each man's work. It says each man's work will become evident. It's going to test the quality of each man's work. So what does that mean for all of us? It means that I'll be there, and it means that you will be there too if you know Christ as your Savior. Now, you'll know in the New Testament, when we look at these passages, uh, it describes this thing as the judgment seat. And when we see that term, the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment seat of God, we might go, wait a minute, wait a minute, Bruce! I, I, I don't, I don't understand this exactly. How is this supposed to work? I mean, I thought there was no judgment for a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's true. Romans 8.1 tells us that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The reason why that is true is because Jesus took our judgment. And part of the confusion is that we don't really understand that there are three prominent judgments in the New Testament. So I want to just look at them for a moment. The first one is the forensic judgment of sin at the cross. This is what Jesus accomplished at the cross. The forensic judgment of sin that the holiness of God demanded be paid was paid for by Christ. And so that's why it says in John 3.18, he who believes in him, who's putting their trust in the work that Christ did on the cross is not judged. And it's talking about this forensic judgment of sin. And then in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life, and notice here it comes again, and does not come into judgment. The forensic judgment of sin is what fell on Christ. But we also need to know that there is a second prominent judgment in the New Testament, and that is the final judgment of unbelievers. And we see this described in particular in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. It's described there as the great white throne judgment. And what happens is that all the unbelievers of the world, of all the generations, are gathered there, and when their name is not found in the book of life, it says they are thrown into the lake of fire. So we have the forensic judgment of sin at the cross. We have the final judgment of unbelievers. And the third prominent judgment in the New Testament is the evaluative judgment of believers or the Bema. This is where Jesus, our rescuer, is going to be our evaluator. Which leads us then to the next thing we want to look at, and that is the nature of the Bema. Remember, we talked about how that phrase judgment seat that we see in our English Bibles represents just one word in the original, a four-letter word, which is the word bema, B-E-M-A. What was the name? I mean, I don't know what a bema is. We don't have bemas hanging around here in Norman, Oklahoma. So what is a bema anyway? Well, a bema was basically a raised platform or a rostrum, And I want to share with you ways that it was used in the secular world. First of all, in the Roman world, the most frequent use of Bema was describing a legal tribunal. It was a raised platform or rostrum that was a legal tribunal where a judge would hear a legal case and then that judge would render a judgment. And it is used that way in the New Testament in this legal tribunal sense 10 different times. I'll just give you some illustrations of it. For example, in John chapter 19, verse 13, Jesus is arrested and he's taken before the Bema of Pilate, the legal tribunal of Pilate. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 12, Paul is taken before the bema of Gallio, the legal tribunal. There was an issue, a legal issue that needed to be decided. In Acts chapter 25 and verse 6, Paul is taken before the bema of Festus, the legal tribunal of Festus. And so when you talk about how the word is used outside of Scripture, Very common, most common in the Roman world to be describing a legal tribunal. However, in the Greek world, it was a little bit different. Most frequently, when a bema was used in the Greek world, it referred to the athletic games that would occur in various parts of the Greek empire, Uh, like the Olympics, for example. We're not talking about baseball game, football game, basketball game. We're talking about that kind of athletic game, like the Olympics would be. And what would happen in that setting, you would have a raised rostrum or platform, and the judges of the athletic games would observe the participants contesting themselves, and then they would award the victorious contestants with usually a wreath Or a crown. Now, what is really interesting is that we've all heard of the Olympics and they existed at the time, but also there was another set of games called the Ispian Games and they were held in the area of Corinth, biennial games that would occur every other year. And uh, these games were held in the Corinth area in what was called the Isthmus of Corinth here. And you'll notice that um, ancient Corinth was down here, but this is called the Isthmus of Corinth. And what we have is this area is between two bodies of water. To the north and the west is the Gulf of Corinth, and to the south and the east is the Saronic Gulf. And they would, every other year, hold these world-famous Isthmian games on this Isthmus, of Corinth. say so what, what were they doing there? Well, they would have foot races, they would have horse races, they would have chariot races, they would have people throwing the javelin, they would have people boxing and so forth. So when we see the use of the word bema, the bema of Christ, the bema of God, what, in what way should we understand it? Well, it seems to me since legal judgment does not await the believer in Christ, it seems to me that this second use makes the most sense, that of the Isthmian games and the Bema being a reward stand, if we could use that particular term. Now, it makes more sense when you think of to whom is he writing 2 Corinthians was going to to whom? The people who lived in the area of Corinth, who every other year would have the Isthmian games there. Not only that, but we have Romans chapter 14 Paul is writing to the Romans from what city? Does anybody know? The city of Corinth. In fact, he spent a year and a half, more than any other place, in the city of Corinth. And it's highly, highly likely that Paul himself observed the Isthmian Games being held and no doubt was thinking, what a great illustration of what lies ahead for believers in Jesus Christ. Now, whether you were competing in the Olympics or you were competing in the Isthmian Games, everyone was designed, those set of games, to honor a particular god. The Isthmian Games were designed to honor the god Poseidon, who was the god of the sea. And you can kind of picture why they would want to do it on the Isthmus of Corinth, because you had the sea up here and the sea down here. And what would happen is you would come from many, many different places, really around the world regionally, and you would be competing at those games to particularly honor Poseidon. And then the victors would be awarded a wreath crown. Now, here's what is interesting. Not everyone came from an area. Every area had particular gods that they promoted. Not everybody came from an area that promoted Poseidon. And so what is really interesting is when you would win a a wreath crown at the Isthmian Games, when you return to your hometown, you would place that victor's wreath on the altar of your own deity. Now remember that for next time because we're going to see an interesting parallel from the Word of God. So looking again at Romans 14.10, says we will all stand before the bema of God. We could say the rewards stand. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We're going to give an account for how we've chosen to run our life race as a believer. Again, 2 Corinthians 5:10, we must all appear before the bema of Christ, we could call it the reward stand so that each one may be recompensed, we could say rewarded, for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, some people get a little concerned here because one translation says, you're going to be recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or evil. And we go, yikes, (laughs) what? You mean, I'm going to get to heaven and... There's going to be a review of every bad word I ever uttered. There's going to be a review of every sinful, evil thought that I ever had. There's going to be a review of every bad, sinful choice that I ever made, and I've made a bunch of them. Some of them have been disastrous. Is that what's going to happen? Is that what it's saying is going to happen? Now, remember, this is so very vitally critical. This is why we take all of Scripture together. Our sins, if we've trusted in Christ, have been paid in full. It is finished. That's that legal accounting term. It's been paid off. As it says in Psalm 103, 12, he has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Can I get an amen on that one? Absolutely, right? So what is this referring to when it talks about good or bad? Well, I want us to see that the word bad here is not the usual terms for evil. For example, the usual terms for evil would be kakos, K-A-K-O-S, or the usual term for evil would be paneros, P-O-N-E-R-O-S. Well, that's not the term that he's used when he talks about good or bad. He uses the term phallos, P H A U L O S. What does phallos mean? If is it good or phallos? Well, phallos has the idea of being substandard. It has the idea of good for nothingness. It has the idea of worthless. And what it seems to be implying is, which is true for all of us, we'll admit it, some of our choices that we've made in life have just been virtually worthless in terms of eternity. They are substandard when it comes to being worthy of reward. Now, now let me just illustrate this one way. Let's just all imagine, for some of us who've been a long time ago, let's imagine we're enrolled at the university. And we're enrolled enrolled in a particular class. And we decide, because we're enrolled in that particular class, we're going to make certain choices. And one of those choices is, we like being in college. We're going to partay. We're going to have a great old time. And we're not even going to go to class. And some of you are nodding, yeah, 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 live that life. And when you don't go to class, you end up failing all the tests, right? And at the end of the class, what do you get? You get a zero. You get no reward for the money that you put into it at all. Now, it may have a significant impact on your GPA. It might mean, because of what happened in that class, that you don't graduate with honors. It may mean, because of what you did in that class, blowing it off, that you might limit some of your grad opportunities. But by itself... It won't keep you from graduating from college. And that's part of the idea. There's some things that we've all chosen to do, gone off in the weeds over here or over there, and that's pretty much worthless in terms of having eternal impact. But it doesn't mean we're not going to spend eternity with Christ. I want you to notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 about the ramifications of the reward seat. Thinking of this reward seat, he says, therefore, in light of that truth, we set as our ambition to be pleasing to Jesus. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.11, he says, therefore, in light of this truth of the Bema, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. In other words, I try to convince other people of the reality of this that the Bema is coming. We set our ambition to be pleasing to Jesus. Why wouldn't we do that? I mean, please the one who bled and died for us, right? Now, I want us to understand when he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, it's not like he's afraid Jesus is going to reject me. You know, I'm going to just hit the eject button. Boom, there you go, right out of heaven. No, it's not, that's not what he's talking about. His concern for the fear of the Lord is he had a concern that he was going to maybe grieve the Lord. He had some dread about this because he doesn't want to displease the Lord. Who does who knows him personally? I like the way John Walvert, who for many years was the president of Dallas Seminary, actually went on a trip to Israel with him many years ago. He's now with the Lord. But this is what he said, speaking of this fear that he mentions, Paul mentions, he says, this fear is the possibility that his life will be revealed as one wasted and spent in foolishness rather than in devotion and complete obedience to Christ. Now, at this point in time, you, talk, or you might be thinking, okay, now, Bruce, I'm, I'm trying to put all this together. I'm trying to understand this. Uh, you're talking about there's, a, like, there's some reward we can get that might be adding to our inheritance. I thought we already had an inheritance. Doesn't the Bible say that every believer has an inheritance? And the truth is, yes, it teaches that. In fact, we need to think of inheritance in two ways. First of all, we have a salvation inheritance, When we trust Christ, we are immediately given a salvation inheritance. Ephesians 1.11 says, we have obtained, you'll notice that's a past tense, an inheritance. And then it goes on to say in in Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit is a pledge or a down payment of our inheritance. In other words, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is a down payment that God has given to us. What do you do with a down payment? The down payment is guarantees you're going to complete the transaction. And that's what the Holy Spirit is in our life. It's a guarantee from God, I'm completing this transaction. You're going to get an inheritance. Hebrews 9.15 talks about the promise of eternal inheritance. And then in 1 Peter 1.4, it tells us that our inheritance is imperishable and that it's reserved in heaven for you. So every believer receives an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. But that's not all there is. There is, secondly, a reward inheritance that will be dispensed at the Bema. And this reward inheritance inheritance is individually determined. Now, if you're like me, I'm a questioner, a little journalism school coming back, What's going to be evaluated? What will we be evaluated on? Well, the first thing we're going to be evaluated on is our deeds, the life choices that we make. We see that very clearly. We've already seen it some. 2 Corinthians 5.10, what's going to be evaluated? Our deeds. So each one may be recompensed for his deeds according to what he has done, for the choices that have been made. 1 Corinthians 3.14, again, testing each man's work, our deeds, our choices. And if it remains as it's tested, he will receive a reward. We're going to be evaluated on our deeds, on the life choices we make. Things like, are we relying on Jesus on a regular basis? Are we relying on the Holy Spirit to develop his fruit in our life? Things like, do I trust in his promises when the circumstances are crushing me? Things like, am I faithfully serving Jesus and others? Not just when I was young, maybe, but all the way through my life. Sometimes people get a little older, and they say, I'm retiring from ministering and serving other people and serving Jesus. No, no, no. All of those things are the kind of things we're going to be evaluated on, our deeds. Second thing we're going to be evaluated on would be our motives, our motives. We see this described in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. It talks about when the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness, and here we go, and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. And so we're going to be evaluated as to motive. Why is that necessary? Because let's be honest and and open with ourselves, right? We have a tendency to operate out of selfish ambition. (laughs) At least I do. We have an opportunity to really be more promoting ourselves, having an ulterior motive to some of the things that we do. You know, where we're out to impress others, rather than pleasing the Lord. Hey, preachers have this same potential issue. Because it's possible, you know, to put together a message and is oh, it's got great illustrations, great points, it's very smooth, and we're doing it because I want people to be impressed. Tell me how good it is. See, that's a possible motive. Rather than wanting to please the Lord and to be accurate in the communication of the truth, see, So everybody has to check our motive on things like this. Our motives have to be evaluated because sometimes, and by the way, this is really true in the political realm, that people relate to other people for their own benefit. They're thinking about themselves. And that's possible for every one of us. And so we're going to be evaluated, first of all, by our deeds, secondly, by our motives. So we, we've looked at the subjects of the Bema. We've looked a little bit at the nature of the Bema. I want to talk a little bit about the when of the Bema. When is this event going to occur? And as you look at Scripture, we see a number of passages that give us some hints. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 talks about when the Lord comes. 2 Timothy 4, 8 says, on that day. Philippians two sixteen. says, says, in the day of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, speaks of the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.4 says, when the chief shepherd appears. Now, there are many fine biblical scholars who've worked very hard to identify the exact time that this event happens. Some of them have concluded, you know, what happens Right after the rapture of the church, where we're called up into heaven to be with the Lord. Happens then. Others have said, you know, I really don't think it happens then. I think it happens during the marriage supper of the Lamb, which occurs in Revelation chapter 19, just before Christ returns the second time to the earth. Other people say, you know what, I really think it happens during the seven year tribulation period between the rapture and the second coming to the earth. That's when it occurs. I had someone after the previous service who said, I think it's going to happen during the thousand-year millennial kingdom because it's going to take a lot of time to get all that done. I will say this. Certainly it's going to happen after we die. It doesn't happen now. It happens when our our life is over and we're going to face the Lord. So here's my my view on all of this rather than getting lost in the woods about figuring out the exact timing i don't want to be distracted from the truth that this will happen god can handle the timing of it but it will happen now as we close this message today i want to answer the question why does this truth about eternal rewards even exist why why is it there Well, I really like the way Joe Wall put it. He says this, very straightforward. He said, the Bible describes the judgment seat of Christ for one main purpose, to affect the way we think and live, to motivate us to anticipate with joy his return and to live our lives to please him. That's why it's worth taking a look at. Because it is there to affect the way we think and live. It's there to motivate us to anticipate His return. It's there to help us to live our lives to please Him. Now, this is not just a heavy kind of truth at all. This is going to be a very encouraging experience and truth. There's a lot of encouragement in the truth behind the Bema and eternal rewards. Max Lucado does a great job of describing this. You remember how Jesus said that the first shall be last and the last shall be first? Sometimes we just sit around in life and go, well, I'm not like Bruce Hess. You know, he speaks over here and he does this and whatever, you know. So I guess there's, you know, wait a minute now. Wait a minute. The first are going to be last, the last are going to be first. I mean, this could be really encouraging. He goes on to say the small will be great. The forgotten will be remembered. Do you ever think you're forgotten? You know, you're ministering to your family in the name of Christ. You're ministering to a sick person, um, maybe an elderly parent, or, or you have a special needs kid, or you're working over here, you're working there, you're working with Mission Norman. No one seems to really know. Well, the forgotten are going to be remembered. The unnoticed will be crowned, and the faithful will be honored. What the world has overlooked, your father has remembered. That is so cool. And sooner than you can imagine, you will be blessed by him. This is an encouraging concept, the bema of Christ. Now, I want you to come back next week. Next week, we're going to look at three analogies of the Christian life. We're going to look next time at the fact that every believer is a builder. So the question we ask is, how good a job are we building? We're going to see that every believer is a manager. There's a certain pool of resources that we are to manage. How are we doing? And then we're going to see that every believer is a marathoner. We're all involved in a spiritual race. And then we're also going to look at some specific rewards. Not every reward is described, but we have some specific rewards that are laid out for us next time we are together. So let's pray together. Father, we really thank you so much for Scripture. We need it. We, don't, we would never see any of these things. We wouldn't be aware of these things. And Father, I know for some of us, maybe we've been on spiritual coast way, way too long. And it's time to kick it up a few notches. Father, I would pray that we would be more than merely informed by this series I would pray that we would be transformed by this series. We would be transformed in the choices that we make on a daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly basis. And we would do all of that because we want to please the one who bled and died for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.